So if you would have told me that when I sat down to watch The Neon Demon, that I would be reminiscing about a scene in which Jenna Malone sits astride a corpse that she's supposed to be applying makeup to and makes out with it, spits in its mouth, you know, for lubrication, and then twixes her nethers to orgasm, I would have said, no, surely that's not what I'll be watching in September. All right, so look, the Neon Demon is something I know I normally wouldn't do on the Real Quick Podcasts. And I'm telling you that because it's from 2016. The point of the show is to try to get at newer stuff, more more recently available to rent than something from 2016. But I have to say, after watching this movie, I am very much looking forward to talking about it because it is fucked up. Wow. So Nicholas Winding Refn, or however you say his name, directed this. Of course, he did Drive. And this movie was way outside of any of my expectations. Again, another film where I watched the preview, right? We watched the, uh, we watched the trailer on the episode before for the, the, the Hereditary episode. And uh, I had no idea what to expect in this movie. And I have to say, it defied my expectations more than anything I have watched on this show thus far. And boy, am I looking forward to talking about it. It is weird. It is out there. But at the same time, it is mesmerizing. It's oddly compelling. It's colorful. And it has pretty good performances and a lot of different talking points about the themes of the film. And that's the stuff I really want to concentrate on. Because boy... This movie is weird. Now, I'm 100% going to spoil this movie, probably all the way through. I know that uh, I have been mixing and mixing it up a little bit in terms of spoilers go, but I think to be safe, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you I spoil. I'm spoiling this whole film. So the gist of this is that this beautiful young girl shows up in Los Angeles, and uh, she is an up-and-coming model, and the whole idea is her journey through this, which eventually leads to her, now, spoiler alert, death. Yes, she dies at the end of the movie. Now, you're probably not going to be able to guess how she dies. So I'm not going to bury the lead here, and I'm just going to tell you. She is murdered by fellow models and a makeup artist who she snubs, who wants to have a little tryst with her, but she's not into that. So she's snubbed, she snubs this makeup artist and then the makeup artist and the two other models that you see recurring throughout the film assail the main girl whose character's name is Jessie and they kill her and eat her. Yes, yes. The consumption metaphor comes to a head at the end of this movie when they literally consume her. Now, I think that that's actually kind of cool. I think that that is part of the movie that, although fucked up, is pretty interesting, to be perfectly honest with you. The, the film is called The Neon Demon for a reason, because they are all neon demons, in a sense. They all exist under these neon lights, and they are, uh, under these neon lights, and they are all demonic, in a sense. Um, 
their value systems, what they pursue and what they after is just so alien and foreign to somebody like me. But there is moments in this film where, where devil's advocacy is a, is a position I find myself willing to take for the sake of discussion with all of you lovely people. And boy, that leads me into the way this whole movie opens, which is we meet our main character, which is Jesse. Of course, Jesse is played by, I'm trying to remember this girl's name. Let me see if I can pull it up on IMDb while I'm talking to you guys. She is played by Ellie Fanning. So Ellie Fanning is Jesse. Carl Glussman is a guy named Dean. That's weird. I don't usually hear my own name in movies. Jenna Malone plays Ruby, the makeup artist. And of course, Bella Heathcote plays Gigi. And Abby Lee plays Sarah. Um, I didn't look up all these. Oh, and Desmond Harrington is in it, who plays Jack. Desmond Harrington, you might remember, is um, from uh, what's that? Dexter. He's from the show Dexter. He's the cop and inexplicably loses all this weight in one of the later seasons and everyone speculates what's wrong with him in real life. Desmond Harrington is just fine. He said he stopped eating shitty and started running. And as a result, he came, became quite thin. He was already a normal looking fit person. And then he became really thin and people were concerned with him. But anyway, you don't have to be concerned with Desmond Harrington, but I digress. So that's who's starring in this movie. I don't know much about any of them. I know Abby Lee is an Australian uh, model, which would make sense when you look at her. And, uh, and that's how the movie opens. But let's go right into theme number one, which is the idea of the main character in Ellie Fanning. I think part of what makes this film so challenging to wrap your head around is Ellie Fanning herself. Now, Ellie Fanning does a totally fine, a totally fine job in this movie as Jesse. But what's odd about it is that I believe when they shot this movie, she was 16, which makes sense because she doesn't appear nude in the movie at all, which is good because that would be fucking weird. And the whole time I'm watching this movie, as all of these other models and all of these other agents and people that watch her and look at her fawn over her beauty. And I'm sitting here thinking, this is so weird to me, man. And this isn't a virtue signaling for, uh, you know, for the fact that she's only 16. That's not what I'm doing here. It's just honestly how I felt. It's so bizarre. She's 16 and like she's pretty in a 16-year-old girl kind of way. But the way she's sexualized by everyone in the movie is so weird. And of course, it makes sense when you think of the 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 major through line of this film, which is there's always the next young and up-and-comer and all of the jealousy and the resentment and the consumption and their vapid nature and all of this shit. I mean, it's casting a wide net of dispersion on the idea of modeling as a profession, which I think might be a little harsh, um, but I don't want to go off on that yet. Maybe, maybe that will come up again. But what I do want to focus on is Ellie Fanning and how she's only 16 when they shoot this movie, which makes sense uh, when you see how they interact with her, when you see how they decide to shoot her, when you realize, you start asking yourself, because she has kind of this baby face to her, and you're like, how old is this girl? This is so bizarre. Unlike Abby Lee, who plays Sarah, which you go, okay, now that's a grown-up woman. She's in her 30s. That's a grown woman that you can just see the way she looks so much different. And I, I got to be honest, that's one of the things I found myself struggling with 
just on the surface level of this movie, which is Ellie Fanning plays Jessie, who's only 16. She calls herself 19 in the movie, but admits to being 16 in the film, and she, according to the shooting schedule, was actually 16 when they shot the movie. So that's a little out there, a little weird, for sure. And then you have Abby Lee, who plays Sarah, and she's not even like the second main character, but I just like talking about Abby Lee in general, because her performance in this is great, too. And Abby Lee plays Sarah, who is a woman, and when they stand side by side, you go, okay, Abby Lee is a grown woman, almost twice the age of Jesse in Abby Lee's appearance and the character of Sarah, you find yourself going, wow, she's really attractive. She's a grown woman. And when you look at Ellie Fanning as Jesse, you go, that looks like somebody I should be dropping off at school. This is really weird. <laughs> so that's the first, the fucking movie puts you right on, it, it, you're on the back foot immediately. You're backpedaling a little bit and, and you're, and it's a bit off, you're off balance immediately because of her age. But I think that plays into the narrative of the movie. I think it plays into wanting you to feel uncomfortable. Obviously, Nicholas Winding Refn or Winding Refn, Refn, I don't know how you say it. I apologize. Is clearly wanting you to feel offbeat. He's clearly wanting you to feel out of sorts with this whole thing. And it just starts escalating into insanity. You know, the opening clip where I say, Jenna Malone was sitting astride a corpse and finger blasting herself and coming astride a corpse. I'm not kidding. I mean, that happens. And it's so weird. It's so weird that it, 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 it puts you in a position to where like, oh, Jenna Malone, you know, she's attractive. She's acting attractively, but she's sitting astride a corpse. And, and I know the film wants you to grapple with what is happening here. It wants you, it wants to tempt you to feel some sort of sexual arousal at that. It wants you, it, it's tempting you to do that and then to think of yourself as a complete freak. And I just think that there's something bold about that in filmmaking. And yes, yes, yes. Old, old NWR is going to call him the director is a bit up his own ass at times, for sure. And this movie is no exception. You know, it's like he's challenging you. He's challenging your framework, your, your logical thinking. He's challenging the moral core of your body at times while you're watching this movie. But at the same time, He's also just highlighting this vapid, weird nature and really making a horror picture. Because make no mistake about it, when they eat the girl at the end, it's a horror movie. Now, you don't see them eat her, of course. It's just implied, you know, they, they corner her, push her into a pool. She smashes on the ground and bleeds. And then next thing you see is this, this like uh, weirdo scene where the two girls are kissing. They're all covered in blood. There's blood everywhere. And you realize they ate her. Which is all set up, kind of oddly enough, from the beginning of the movie. So knowing the end will, will kind of help you understand the through line. Which, again, I don't want to go into every scene and every detail. That's not what this show is, not at all. But it is important to think of thematically what is happening in this bonkers-ass movie. So one of the things I want to talk about is the relationship between Ruby and Jesse. Ruby, of course, played by Jenna Malone, who's great in this movie. In fact, she's probably my favorite part of the movie, to be honest with you. 
So Jenna Malone is really nice to her. You know, the new girl in town, nobody's nice to her. Of course, the the buzzards are already circling for this young girl, and Ruby takes care of her. She's a makeup artist with some pull. She's worked with some pretty big agencies, and she takes her under her wing and starts to develop feelings for her. And, of course, is later snubbed in the movie, which leads to Ruby being complicit in Jesse's death. Yes, yes, I said that. <laughs> That's this movie. But anyway, before we jump way ahead and go there, it's just the same old tale. It's Jesse's parents aren't around anymore. Young, naive girl goes to Los Angeles, wants to be a model. And she takes her to this party. Ruby takes Jesse to this party where this first thematic stuff comes in. And I got some notes here I wrote down. I don't want to talk about it. So Gigi, one of the models that eats Jesse at the end, marvels at Jesse's hair and real nose. And she says, how life is so unfair which is hilarious coming from the lips of a beautiful white woman in Los Angeles. How life is so unfair. Yes, life is unfair for sure, right? It doesn't treat everyone equally. That's 100% not up for debate. However, (laughs) Gigi kind of pontificating about how life is unfair because of Jesse's perfect hair and real nose. I love that, real nose. And now she also equates plastic surgery to teeth brushing, right? She's like, well, you wouldn't not brush your teeth. She, she's saying plastic surgery to Gigi is as normalized as is teeth brushing to everyone else. And that's just so wild to me. She talks about how her doctor, uh, how she loves her doctors because, you know, she's like, look at me. I love my, I love my doctor because look at me. What a mind fuck that is. And, you know, I don't want to besmirch people who get plastic surgery. Certainly people that, that suffer horrific injuries, uh, burns, or, or have birth defects that want to undergo plastic surgery to, to help themselves, to help themselves mentally. I have no issue with that. I don't even have issue with people who want to fucking do plastic surgery to change the way they look. Whatever. I mean, I would ask people to, uh, I, I would, if it was me, I would personally ask myself, why is it that I feel that I need it? What is it about that? Now, this is coming from, you know, not a young woman. I'm not a young woman, guys. Sorry to break your hearts. Uh, And I'm certainly not trying to break into modeling in Los Angeles. And I'm certainly not on the cusp of 30, which is ancient history in the model world, I'm told, and uh, in trying to keep it together. In fact, this movie jokes that when you're 21, you're too old. I think at the end, there's a joke between a hairstylist and one of the models. But my point is, I don't want to sit up here on a high horse and tell you plastic surgery is bad if it's something that you do to make yourself feel better. I always would wonder, one of the things I always think about is, what is it? I think it's important to derive your value from intrinsic things versus extrinsic things. That's just my personal philosophy. I'm not, I'm not pushing that on anybody, but that's one of the things I wrestled with while watching this movie, that all of their value comes extrinsically. There's no value determination. None of the women in this movie, or, or even the men, which you don't really see much stuff from men in this. The, 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 probably most of the speaking comes from Keanu Reeves' weird appearance as a sleazy motel operator. But none of the women in this movie seem to be able to derive any peace, any self-confidence from intrinsic things. And it just goes to play into the entire, entire landscape that is created in this, in this movie uh, by our main man, 
N W N W R N W R N W R. Yeah, I think I said that wrong. N W R Nicholas Winding Ruffin. Anyway, so that was the first thing I thought about this. You know, Gigi takes a dig at Jesse's dead parents because of because because of Jesse's seemingly flippant attitude about surgery and how she doesn't need it. And she feels like Jesse's judging her, so she attacks her. And there's so much of that in this. There's a lot of predatory and hunting imagery in this film. There's, there's a moment where we see a mountain lion get into her room, which is crazy. It's this weird moment in this movie, this, this juxtaposition of civilization, which we're supposed to be seeing here. We're supposed to be seeing civilization and, and people rising above simple predatory ideology, but no, that doesn't happen. And ideology is too strong of a word, just simple predatory instinct, which is to eliminate competition. You know, one of the things about predators is, is and this is pretty grim. I, I heard this uh, on a podcast once where they were talking about coyotes and they were saying, you know, if, if, a, if a coyote kills a cat, most of the time it's not consuming the cat, which I just thought was interesting. It's simply just eliminating a predatory threat to its dominance in the area. So if, a neighbor, if, if your neighborhood cat goes missing and you live in a place where there's coyotes, chances are you're never going to find it because of that. Or, or you probably, you may find it because it was just a simple hit, hit job. The coyote's like, I'm just going to murder this thing for, for whatever reason, uh, which is wild. But if you don't find the thing, right, then usually it's consuming it and it's around a time where they're having cubs. Anyway, way off the beaten path here. My point is the predatory instincts in this movie are injected in it so viscerally when we see a literal mountain lion that had broken into her room. And it's an actual mountain lion. They shoot a mountain lion in the room, which is badass, a fucking huge cat growling. And then it just goes from there. We see moments of of these uh, taxidermied leopards, and we see a wolf in some of the background shots, this taxidermied wolf, and an owl. And I think there's even like an Artemis or Diana um, the huntress, right? We see that statue at one point. And I just kept thinking to myself, I love this clever and not so subtle, but this clever imagery of predation and consumption and not just consumption from a capitalistic sense, but literal consumption. And that is just so cool about, that's one of the cool things about this movie. The idea of literal consumption becoming one of the themes that is explored by the end of this movie. All the cool shots like that. You think, man, they, they just licked their fucking chops. It's so bizarre, right? When, when Gigi's marveling at Jesse's hair in the bathroom in the, in the movie, it's, there is a predatory nature to it. It's odd. It's just weird. And I think it was co- comedian Kurt Metzger made this joke once a long time ago. He's talking about how, how, uh, you know, sometimes you, when you see this women to women, like, oh, I, I'd love to have her hair or I'd love to have her legs. Oh, I wish I had those eyes. There's this weird, I almost, <laughs> the joke was something along the lines of, and I'm really fucking it up. You should just go listen to Metzger. But it's something along the lines of like, they are almost like a weird version of Hannibal Lecter trying to make their own skin suit out of somebody younger and more beautiful, which is so fucked up because that's something we see in this movie. You know, they talk about fucking their way to the top as well. There's never a moment in this movie where you fear, will you ever feel any genuine emotional content 
that has any weight to it whatsoever, except maybe this guy, Dean, and his affection for Jesse, which actually gets challenged at one point in the movie that I thought was cool because one of these uh, modeling guys, they all kind of go out for dinner. Anyway, one of these modeling guys says to Dean at one point in the movie, he said, you wouldn't have stopped if she wasn't beautiful. So don't pretend you're somehow better because you like Jesse for more than just her beauty. Just don't pretend you wouldn't have stopped had she not been so beautiful. To stop, meaning stopped to engage her, to see her, to notice her. And there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of uh, you know just visual watching, visual seeing, taking people and consuming them with your eyes, so to speak, and then literally eating them. But and the guy has a point. There is there is something to be said for the aesthetics of people and what we find attractive and not attractive. And yes, you can get around that and personality personality goes a long fucking way to quote Jules from uh, Pulp Fiction. Or is it Vincent that says it? I don't remember. One of them says it. But um, it it is the only genuine thing, but it's almost, as is, as is pointed out by the film, predicated on bullshit, which is you stopped because she was attractive. Now, you could call that bullshit, but sometimes that's just the reality. The way someone looks has a lot to do with if we choose to engage them or hear them out or something like that. At least it does when it comes to guys towards girls. I can't really speak for women, but men see somebody that is, quote unquote, attractive to them, and it provokes biological responses in that person. And I just like that he calls him on it, and I thought that that was interesting. And I guess at the beginning when I said my devil's advocacy for some of the parts of this film, I guess that's one of them, that right there. was. Whereas Dean, yes, is trying to have a genuine connection, but make no mistake, he stopped because she's pretty. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And uh, I'm not here to cast a moral judgment on that. I'm just saying that that is sometimes biology. That is sometimes life. Most times life, actually, if we're being honest. Anyway, they talk about fucking their way to the top, sex with men, right? And how it's just supposed to be. How high can you climb? And can you climb higher than me by fucking men of status? Anyway, we see this weird performance art and all this stuff. So that's one of the big things about it. That, the image of predation, the image of consumption. And, and even though Ruby is kind and nice to her, at the end, it's the same thing. She's captured by her beauty. Ruby might not admit this, but by way of her performance and what she does, you can tell that she is just in awe of Jesse, in awe of her natural beauty and putting makeup on her. And when she puts makeup on her in the chair, it's so intimate. Using the brush and leaning in close and like looking deep into her eyes. There's a lot more going on there than I'm just looking out for this girl. She's really taken with her. She really finds her attractive and wants to be with her or at least wants to experience some sort of encounter with her, as we see uh, by the end of the movie, which doesn't go Ruby's way, by the way. Anyway, one of the other things about this movie is the, the idea of feeling small and being unnoticed. That's a thing, right? All of these women are trying to be noticed, and, and it starts with this discussion between Jesse and Dean where they're looking up at the stars and talking about how they feel so insignificant or something of that nature. But this whole movie is that, being seen. And not just being seen, but being seen by the right people who can put you where you need to be. Again, modeling is a rough, rough gig, man, as I can 
only imagine. What a rough gig. Your art, so to speak, is your appearance. It's your confidence. It's the way you carry yourself. And it's all accidental. So much of that is accidental. There's really no virtue in beauty. Right? It's just accidental. Yes, you can cultivate it. Yes, you can take care of yourself. Yes, you can be fit. But there's a lot of that stems from accidental genetics, which is fascinating. And what a tough gig. You know, John, John Margerson, Johnny Butters, he does the art for this show and he does some production work. He's been on a few episodes. He'll be on some more. But when we were first kind of getting together to hang out, he's like, you know, don't, don't be afraid to tell me you don't like a piece of thing that, something that I do. I just, just be honest with me so we can move forward. And I totally appreciate it about them. About, I appreciate that about him. It's just this elimination of the ego from the whole thing. And I talk about that too. I, I try to take ego out of the podcast and, and think about things objectively as much as I can. And I know if you're an artist, you try to do that. If you're a musician, you try to do that. Now, there is taste and all this stuff. Taste is one thing, and that's hard to judge. It's hard to really be objective with taste. But I think that there is something really true about that in art, and that's this ability to take your ego out of it and and understand criticism if it's something that is valuable to you. And boy, it's got to be rough being a model facing criticism on your literal appearance. Something you don't have a lot of control over. Again, that's tough just to not have what they're looking for. And they say, goodbye, right? We see that when there's this meeting and after the meeting, the model lady comes out and she's like, you can leave. And the other two stay and the girl just gets up and leaves. Fucking brutal, man brutal. So on the one hand, you think what a vapid and weird existence, but the industry almost creates and engenders that behavior because you're, you can be, you're chosen. You, you are picked and discarded on a whim of your appearance. And if you have the right look for that particular artist or that particular fashion, uh, you know, fashion producer or whatever you want to call them. And that's it, man. That's so intense. But those are your, I mean, honestly, those are your, your two major pieces of this movie. Um, there is the talk of beauty as currency. I mean, that's something we just spent a decent amount of time talking about. And that's something that Gigi says to Jesse later in the movie. And she says, you know, you, true beauty is the highest currency we have. If you weren't beautiful, you would not have been stopped, right? And that, that goes back to the, to the earlier piece where, Dean is told, if she wasn't beautiful, you would not have stopped. True beauty isn't everything. It's the only thing. Man, that's intense. And, you know, we see how quickly Jesse is corrupted. Because the film wants Jesse to be the main character. And, you know, she is, despite the fact that she meets a horrific and tragic end. We feel for the vulnerable 16-year-old girl who is being thrust into this brutal world. We feel for her, even though she's beautiful, even though she's beautiful, the fuck, even though she's beautiful, we, we feel for her. We, we are concerned with, is she going to get taken apart by the sharks? Are the predators going to get her? Yes, in fact, they are, quite literally. And we worry about her, but then we see her get corrupted by a little. She says things like, I don't want to be them. They want to be me. And she's not wrong. And she is not wrong. And then we see weird dreams where 
Keanu Reeves' character, Hank, has a knife in her mouth. It's like he's fucking her mouth with a knife. What? And then, as we get to the end of this movie, and pretty much the end of my discussion as to what I want to say in this movie, we have this moment where Ruby goes to Jesse's house because, excuse me, Jesse goes to Ruby's house because Jesse hears um, what is a young girl being assailed in the room next to her at this creepy motel. So she gets the fuck out of there. She has no place to go. She goes to see Ruby, who's clearly sweet on her, the makeup artist played by Jenna Malone. And they have this discussion and it harkens back to Interview with a Vampire. And I thought that this was really fascinating based on the way we know the movie's going to end, which is in the consumption of Jesse. And that's this. Ruby says... Jesse says to Ruby, how long have you lived here? And Ruby says, I don't live here. But I thought you said this was your house. No. I said I'm house-sitting, watering the plants, checking the mail. Oh, well, do you think they'll mind if I'm crashing? You can stay here for as long as you like. And then Ruby brushes Jesse's hair and things get intimate, and that's when she gets snubbed on a sexual advance. But before that, I want to talk about that. It is Ruby's house. She said it was her house. Now she's backtracking. And this is fascinating. I don't live here. I'm just sort of tending to the house. Man, that is deep and and heavy. That is deep and heavy shit here. Now you could say the film has a supernatural bend to it. Sure, they eat a girl and then at the end they vomit up her eyeball or something weird. It, It does. It has a supernatural feeling to it for sure. It's definitely a horror movie without a doubt, especially in the third act here. But that reminds me of the interview, and we've talked about this at least three times, and and I'm apologizing for for bringing it up before, but I know we've talked about this on the Science Fiction Film Podcast, specifically when we covered an interview with a vampire, which you should go listen to and subscribe to. Hey. But when Christian Slater asks Brad Pitt's character, who's Louis, he says, you know, is this, do you live here in Brad Pitt's character as a vampire just says, no, it is just a house. It is just a room or something like this. And the point is, he's not alive. He's dead. So he doesn't live there. And that, that, this piece with Ruby kind of reminded me of that, which is, how long have you lived here? I don't live here. And she goes on to say how she just tends the home, tends the house. I love that. I love that Ruby is almost admitting here in a sense that she doesn't really live at all. That Although she has biological responses and you could hook up medical equipment to her and know that she is in fact alive, she is, by her own admission, dead. And that is fucking cool, man. I like that part of this movie. It's weird, right? It's like she's saying she just doesn't, she's not alive. She doesn't exist. She's a makeup artist. She just goes through these motions and she pays the bills by, by you know, putting uh, makeup on corpses, whatever you call that. And... Um, and like I said at the beginning of this, masturbating herself in the presence of one of these corpses for some fucking weird reason. But yeah, I like that. And Jesse's like, well, thank you for being good to me. It's what friends are for. And that's when she makes the move on her long beat, doesn't go well. And uh, she asks, uh, Jesse actually has to toss Ruby to the floor. She sexually assails her. It seems less severe when it's two women. That's just my personal bias. I'm not saying it is less severe. It just seems it. There's no disparity of force here. Jesse's actually kind of a big, tall girl, and she easily tosses Ruby off. And uh, ends up staying the night anyway. Ruby sleeps in the next room, and that's when this movie just goes bonkers. It's at this point where Ruby's done with Jesse, um, 
and the other girls just go after her. And boy, what a weird movie, man. What a bizarro ending. Bizarre. And that's, that's, that's the movie. That's what you're watching. Now, I'm talking a lot about a movie that relies heavily on visual style. So I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's worth watching. It's worth watching because it's on Amazon Prime and it's not going to cost you a dollar if you already have Amazon Prime. It will cost you two hours though. So maybe skip it and just listen to this. But boy, this movie is out there. There is all, a lot of the themes in it are cool. The consumption, this vapid nature of the way they, they are, the way they all go out to breakfast. They get, you know, uh, a fruit salad between the three of them and, and coffees. They don't eat anything which is hilarious, which is ironic. Here they are trying to, here they are trying to be skinny, uh, model skinny, enough to where they don't lose their jobs, yet they consume a woman at the end of it to, I guess you could say, absorb her essence, absorb her powers, that cannibalistic thing of taking Jesse and making themselves Jesse in this weirdo Bathory sort of way, right? Was that her name, Bathory? The lady who was... Uh, bathing in the blood of children or something. I don't remember. Elizabeth Bathory, Hungarian noble woman, alleged of serial killing. That's the one, Elizabeth Bathory. And there's actually a shot of Ruby in a tub of blood, and it's very Elizabeth Bathory to me, if you believe the legends. And that's just this idea, this, this pursuit, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. And boy, we see that here when Ruby goes after Jesse. Holy shit, man. <laughs> but... It is a wacky movie. It will have you, your jaw will drop in moments. You'll say, holy shit. You, you might say, why did I just watch that movie? Which is definitely a fair criticism. But it's worth it just on visual style alone. So I would say check it out. If you were to apply my scale to it, which is hated it, didn't like it, liked it, loved it. Um, I guess I liked it enough to recommend it. So there's that. All right. It's definitely worth checking out. So let's talk about what we're going to be covering next week on the film, or perhaps within the next four or five days, depending on this release schedule, which has been pretty frequent. So I thought about this a lot. I thought about, boy, what do I want to watch? What should I do next on the show? I've gotten some suggestions that have come in. And I was like, ah, gee, I don't know. What do I want to do? I I was looking at uh, a couple different movies. And I think I am settling on a couple. And I'm deciding right now, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, that I want to cover the film Beirut. Now, Beirut is a film which is an old script from Tony Gilroy, I guess. And essentially says, John Hamm stars as uh, Mason Skiles, a former U.S. diplomat who gets sent to Beirut to negotiate a swap for the release of a terrorist leader believed to be imprisoned by Israel's secret police in exchange for a CIA agent who has been kidnapped. Confronted by ghosts from his past, Mason faces a formidable question. What do you trust in a world where the truth emerges only when it's convenient or profitable? From the writer of the Bourne trilogy, the taut action thriller also stars Rosamund Pike and Dean Norris and is being hailed by critics as a, quote, tense and ever-twisting, end quote, Richard Roper, Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, it's got an 81 in Rotten Tomatoes, if you care about that sort of thing, directed by Brad Anderson, starring John Hamm. So that's the movie we're going to be doing next time on the show. Uh, we're going to be breaking away from this a little bit. 
I was looking at that Joaquin Phoenix, You Were Never Here or something. It looks like a revenge film, and we just kind of did one with Upgrade, even though that one looks more serious, so that might be on the docket coming up. I'm still thinking Black Panther. I'm still thinking Quiet Place, Rampage, uh, fucking Age of Ultron. There's a lot of different things I want to talk about. I just like mixing up the genres right now. So I want to go to political thriller with Beirut. So why don't we do this? I have no idea what to expect. Let's watch the trailer and then go from there. How does that sound? So let me fire up the trailer and see what we think. Mason Francis Skiles, 45 years old. 10 years ago, he was deputy chief of mission here until his wife was killed. He's damaged goods, but he's manageable. Maybe one of you can tell me what I'm doing here. Three nights ago, an American was pulled off the street in West Beirut. Next morning, we got a communique from a group calling itself the Militia of Islamic Liberation. They have the guy they want to talk. They want you to broker the deal. They asked for you specifically. Your friend Cal, he's the hostage. Cal's the head of all Mideast operations. He talks. You'll be waiting for bodies to pile up on the embassy sidewalk. What does he want me to do? You're an experienced negotiator. Negotiate. All right, man. I am in. This looks definitely interesting. A taut political thriller as it's being as it's being marketed, and uh, it looks good, man. This looks this this looks interesting. I like the. There's something about negotiation in a tense situation that is intriguing to me. It's one of the things I love about the show Ozark, which is awesome. I highly recommend you guys watch Ozark. I just started watching second season and uh, it kicks ass. I really like that show. Talk about tense negotiations. Uh, That's one of the things I like about this here. There's high stakes negotiations. That is always interesting to me. And then you put in the political backdrop and of course the intrigue and the danger just gets that much more intense. So yeah, I'm looking forward to Beirut. This was a uh, recommendation from uh, Danny Falch. And uh, I just want to say thank you for that. I will definitely be checking out Beirut and talking to you guys about it in the next few days. All right, I am going to get out of here. And remember, baby, beware of the neon demon because they're going to eat you up. memory of the first time. I was attending my niece's wedding and was at the sink in the men's room when a wet spot on the front of my trousers caught my eye. An unwelcome contribution from my bladder. Fortunately, I was wearing black and with my jacket buttoned, no one would be the wiser anyway, but for me, I knew it was time to see a urologist. Want to laugh during life's most embarrassing moments? LSG can help. Go to libertystreetgeek.net. Podcasters will give you a reason to wet yourself.